0: This is the Simi Sarah Show on demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio
1: Player app.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Things were a little busy in Ottawa over the weekend, where Parliament was sitting, working to pass that wage subsidy bill. Let's find out how that went. Joining us now, David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So is help on the way for businesses across Canada? Yeah, it looks that way. I mean, we're
3: still looking for specific rollout dates, but the latest we heard from the finance minister was uh, this wage subsidy program will be up and running within, you know, as fast as possible, but it, it may not be until the middle of May. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for businesses. I know they're desperate to get this. The good news is once this wage subsidy program does go into effect, it will be retroactive to March the 15th. So you'll be able to essentially, if you had laid off employees, um, or you, or you're, you're borrowing essentially to pay the bills, uh, you can get some, uh, relief backdated to March the 15th.
1: Okay. And was there any problem getting this passed on the weekend? Things went smoothly? Not really.
3: Not really. No, it went very smoothly. I mean, don't forget, a month ago when we had the first time that we had this parliament of 40 people uh, show up, uh, the opposition was surprised by some stuff in the legislation the government put forward. The opposition was a bit suspicious this time around. And when I say opposition, that's NDP, conservatives, everybody. But uh, this time around, there was no surprises in the legislation. Uh, it basically, there was unanimous agreement that this was going to pass even before the House of Commons uh, sat so it was really just sort of a pro forma sitting, ran a couple of hours, some speeches, Senate jumped in, gave it approval, uh, all done in an afternoon.
1: Okay. And is this then the way Parliament's going to look for the next little while, David, with this kind of uh, smaller version of it with 40 people there? Uh,
3: it, it looks like it. At least that's what the opposition is saying that it ought to look like, that we still should meet, that when I say we, the House of Commons MP should still meet in person. Uh, For instance, if they say if if ministers can stand in front of the press every day at noon, as they've been doing with six feet apart and answer questions from reporters, there's no reasons they can't just move uh, a few feet over into the House of Commons and do the same. That press conference you're seeing every day around noon Eastern time is held in West Block. Uh, As they say, it's it's literally a a 30 second walk from the House of Commons. Um, So the opposition is saying, why not just head over to the House of Commons and stand there and take questions from MPs? Now, the government says they'd like to find some other way, perhaps to do it virtually, because... Yes, MPs are sitting separate from each other, but when you run the House of Commons, you still have to have staff and clerks uh, to uh, support the work of MPs, and you know this represents an increased risk for them in this age when we're trying to say everybody stay home from work if you mm-hmm. can. So it, it, that's still a, a very much a question, uh, sort of up for debate about how uh, Parliament is to function in this time. We do know that uh, House of Commons committees are meeting by teleconference. We've seen the House of Commons Finance Committee meet a few times. We've seen the Health Committee meet to discuss various issues. Uh, I can't say it's it's smooth running. I've tried to cover some of those teleconferences, <laughs> and the, the technical problems are just ridiculous, but uh, they're trying to work through them as best they can.
1: And how, fest- how receptive do you think the federal government is at this point to the call from cities now for, across Canada saying they need help, they need federal money?
3: Yeah, that's going to be a new headache for the federal government, and I suspect we're going to want to put some questions to uh, some ministers today. Of course, you know, we're all seeing the big news yesterday that uh, Kennedy Stewart, uh, of course, Vancouver's mayor, standing... Uh, saying yesterday that uh, Vancouver could be in such dire financial straits it may have to declare bankruptcy somewhere down the road. This on the results of a survey that the city did that said as many as 25% of ratepayers may not be able to pay the rest of their property tax bills. And I think as everybody knows, uh, cities, municipalities, not just in B.C., but elsewhere in the, in the country, uh, cannot borrow their way through yeah. a crisis like this. Provinces can run up deficits. The federal government can run up deficits. Cities can't. So uh, we'll see. Of course, I'm also noting that there are the uh, political opponents of Mayor Stewart. I know to Kirk LaPointe, for example, the former mayoral candidate saying maybe the city ought to take a look at its spending and cut some pet projects and so on and so on. So this is a debate we're going to have. First, it's going to happen at city councils. Then it may happen in provincial legislatures. And finally, it may happen at the federal right. level as well.
1: And so when is the next sitting then for the House?
3: Really don't know. That's up to the uh, the call of the speaker. That's sort of the way it works. Uh, they, they, there is some idea to maybe have it on April 20th. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but uh, uh, that's just still sort of TBD.
1: All right. We will see. David, thank you. Okay, thanks, Simi. Cheers. David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, talking about Ottawa over the weekend. Actually, things going quite smoothly, getting that wage subsidy bill passed. Uh, but for government, or for businesses, I should say, what it means is you're still waiting for cash. And it sounds like it still could be another couple of weeks. However, it will be retroactive to the middle of March.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. We shouldn't be worried about our own food security. The pressure, though, is actually quite significant. Uh, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect perfection at this time. We are in the middle of a crisis, so you should expect to see empty shelves here and there, but there's always food on the way.
1: That is Professor Sylvain Charlebois. He was on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson, and he is an expert on food safety, distribution, and security. Now, I think there are two areas of activities that people are really focused on during this quarantine era that we are living in. One is the outside. Right, doing yard work, gardening, do-it-yourself projects, that kind of thing. The other is most definitely inside, as in inside the kitchen, probably baking up a storm. It would help explain why so many people are having trouble finding flour at the grocery store. I finally found some on the weekend after I saw nothing but empty shelves for weeks. Now, all of that makes us ask, is there a shortage? Is it a supply problem or what's being done about this? Well, I had a chance to speak with Taylor Gemmel, who's the owner of Anita's Organic Grain and Flour Mill, about what's been going on for them and how it's affecting their business. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. I I have to ask you, what is the deal? Why can nobody find flour on the shelves of grocery stores in Vancouver?
4: I think it's all in people's homes right now. Um but seriously, I, I think what's happening is, is there's such a demand right now, uh, people baking at home, that stores just can't keep it on the shelves. It's not a supply issue. Um, I know we've, we've got supply. It's just working through the food chain, uh, going through distribution onto the shelves, and being able to just stock the shelves fast enough. I think that's the, the main problem right now. So, It's not your, a supply issue. I know that for sure.
1: Has your company then been asked to supply more and like do more, give us more?
4: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we've we've increased our production um, by about 75 percent, increased our employees by um, we've just doubled our employees uh, since since COVID happened. Uh, So, yeah, demands just skyrocketed. Um, So we've we've done everything we can to reach um, all of our suppliers demands.
1: So you're one of those companies then, Taylor, that's actually been hiring during all of this.
4: Yeah, we feel so grateful to be in the position that we're in. Um, I, th- I think we're already a great place for people to work in the Chilliwack community. Um, but now, you know, with this happening, we've, yeah, we've had to hire more people, um, giving people an opportunity to work, uh, in this community. And it feels really good to be in that position. So we're providing a, a great workspace for people, uh, clean environments. It's a food safe facility as it always has been. Uh, But we're taking extra measures now just to ensure all of our employees are as safe as possible.
1: Are there particular products that are in higher demand than others? Like, what are you producing so much of?
4: Um, Well, all the staples, like white flour, is increased by a lot. Um, But all the whole grains as well, like all the whole grains that we manufacture, they're flying off the shelves, whole grain flours. Um, Everything that we do is organic. So, I mean, that's good to see that people are just, um, you know, going after good food as well, not just, um, not just the cheapest food on the shelf. Right. Um, and yeah, our, our, all of our suppliers, all our farming partners uh, across Western Canada, um, we've got long-term relationships with, with all of them and they are really, um, they've really helped us through this, through this time as well. Um, just supplying everything that we need as fast as, as fast as they can as well.
1: Do you think this is going to last, or are baking habits that we've gotten into right now something that are going to hang around, do you think?
4: Um, I would, yeah, I, I really think they, they will. I mean, once people start baking more, I don't see why they would stop. I mean, it's such a fun thing to do. It's, it's great to do with family. It's, it's rewarding. Um, you know, it's, it's a back-to-basic thing that um, we've done for forever, uh, so I think once people start baking again, I don't see why they'd stop. I mean, uh, it's such a fun thing to do.
1: Oh, listen, I'm with you. I was a baker. I've always been a baker, but it's so funny to try to get regular supplies and go, where did all the stuff go? It's always been here. It's no, so it's not weird. there right now. Uh, are you worried though yeah. about if this does end that there might be too much supply out there?
4: Yeah. I mean, that's a major concern for us. Um, we're keeping an eye on that as much as we can. Um, my feeling personally is people are actually going through it. I mean, they're, they're buying a lot of flour, but, you know, you can't go to eat. You're making a lot of your own food. Um, so I think people are actually going through the product they're buying. Um, and when this is all over, um, they're, they're going to have to continue to buy from the store. I mean, it's, it's, but it is a concern. We'll see what happens. But that's, that's my general thoughts on it right now.
1: All right. Well, listen, Taylor, thanks for your time on this.
4: I uh, appreciate it, Cindy. Thank you very much.
1: As Taylor Gemmel, owner of Nita's Organic Grain and Flour Mill, yes, they are uh, grinding that flour, bagging it as fast as they possibly can to get it to people, but the demand is really great right now. If you want to weigh in, I mean, if you've tried shopping for this, what's the thing that you're looking for that you find is no longer on the shelf?
2: This is Mornings with Cindy.
1: There certainly was a feeling out there from people I heard from so many of you on Friday saying, you know, that your neighbors had traveled or you your parkade seemed empty at your condo building. Uh, So there was this feeling that people were traveling. Well, where were they going? Were they going to places like Tofino? Well, they were prepared for that if that were the case. So let's find out how that went. Joining us now is the mayor of Tofino, Josie Osborne. Good morning. Good morning. So what measures did Tofino take to deal with this potential influx of people?
5: Well, we've been trying to message very strongly for the past three weeks to ask our visitors to book their vacations later to Tofino and to stay at home. So leading up to the long weekend, we sent out yet another message strongly urging second homeowners and visitors to please stay home and not come to the West Coast. And then on Thursday and Friday afternoons, we actually had some terrific support from our local RCMP detachments and the Parks Canada Warden Service, and they set up a little checkpoint for people coming into town and asking uh, where they were coming from and where they were going and what they were doing. So how
1: many people showed up?
5: Well, we they intercepted about 50 different vehicles on both Thursday and Friday afternoons, and right now we actually have the uh, fortune, I guess, at this point to have the project, the big construction project happening at Kennedy Hill. And that means that people have to wait to get through that project. And it's quite easy to get a a number of vehicles at once. So with the 50 vehicles on Thursday and 50 on Friday, um, the vast majority of them were local residents returning home or essential workers coming
1: out to return to work. Okay, that's good. But did you get any tourists? It was good.
5: Uh, We did still get a handful of second home owners and a few tourists. Um, my understanding is that of the tourists that were coming out, quite a few of them were, I mean, literally just out for a drive. Uh, they wanted something to do, and then they were cooped up at home, and they thought they'd go for a drive, and they thought they'd come to the end of the road. So most of them didn't seem to have plans or a place to stay, which is not surprising because most places are closed right now. And the uh, conversations that they had with the RCMP officers and the park wardens convinced quite a few of them to turn around and go home.
1: Okay, so that's good. Do you think this is something you're going to have to keep up, though? Well, I
5: this is a good question, and I think this weekend was a bit of a litmus test for us. It, it certainly was uh, pretty dead in town, and very few people. I tried to speak to as many people as I could this weekend. You know, hey, did you see any visitors? Did you know right. of any tourists in town? And uh, it went it went better than I expected, quite frankly, and I think um, that, that maybe... Helps us understand that the future weekends are hopefully not too much of a concern, that British Columbia really does seem to be getting the message, and those last few people that didn't seem to be uh, reachable are, are now being reached.
1: Okay, and is this something, so you're going to wait and see, maybe use this for what, May long weekend? Yeah, that's right. So we'll continue with the messaging,
5: and uh, of course, listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry every day and trying to get some ideas and hints as to, you know, what the future holds for us. But right now we're holding the line just as she's asked us to do.
1: So was that for, were you monitoring everything? Like there's a little airport in Tofino as well, isn't there?
5: Yes, there is an airport in Tofino and it is open. Airports are part of the essential transportation network that we need right now for supply lines and uh, possibly for medical evacuations if that was needed. So the airport is open and uh, messaging is also going out to anybody who does arrive, which is very, very few people Um, about the fact that everything is closed
1: here. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, Simi. That is the mayor of Tofino, Josie Osborne, letting us know what they were doing to prevent people from coming to the town. They don't have an actual legal authority to block people from entering Tofino, but they set up a checkpoint to let them know, listen, there's no place for you to stay, right? Everything is closed, and uh, we'd actually love to have you back another time. And she said uh, most people definitely heeded that.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, you may have heard or read something about this next story on the weekend. I mean, the video of this just infuriates people and with very good reason. It shows a man, it's security footage uh, from inside of a residential building elevator, and it shows a man spitting on the buttons of the elevator and then walking out. And the reason we know this is because Marie Hui lives in the building. It happened in Olympic Village. And so she described to our Nikki Reitmeyer what she saw in that video.
6: The video shows a man getting into the elevator, coming in from one of the parking levels. He uses his fob to press on his own floor. He rides the elevator, rides the elevator until he reaches his floor. And he kind of waits until the doors open, kind of sees if there's anybody waiting at the elevator door. And as soon as he kind of sees that there's nobody there, he spits on the elevator buttons and then he walks right out. That is absolutely horrifying. It's disgusting. It's, it's just, Deplorable behavior for any time in,
0: in history, you know, when it comes to a pandemic, this is even more concerning. Yeah, it is. And you know, I saw some people online saying, you know, there's no way that this guy could live in the same building where he would spit on his own elevator doors. And it must be a food delivery guy because in the video, you can see him carrying a white plastic bag and it looks like there might be containers or something inside. But you said no, based on what the evidence shows, it looks like this guy actually does live in the building.
6: Yeah, so if he was somebody that was delivering food, he would be coming in from the main floor. That would be the street level. So this, the floor that he came on to the elevator from is a parking level. That parking level also has guest, like visitor parking. But uh, I know that in this building, you have to go and meet your guests down in P1. So he wouldn't be by himself if he was a guest. He also had a fob, right? So... Guests wouldn't have a fob either. So, either somebody gave him the fob or he is a resident in this building. But I can't say for certain. I can't be 100% certain about this because I don't know who he is. I've never seen him before. And I can't really do my own investigation here. I'm not going to be knocking on everybody's door on the floor. I can't even get up to the floor.
0: So, how did you come across the video? Because It looks like it's security footage from a security camera inside the elevator.
6: Yeah, so it looks like security footage for sure. There's nobody else in that elevator. A friend of mine, he saw this video and he got it from somebody else. So I don't know who that somebody else is. But he saw this video and he felt like he needed to share this with me because he knows I live here. I have a one-year-old and he sent it to me because he wanted us to be warned. He wanted to caution us. If you see this guy anywhere, just stay away from him. He doesn't look like he's in a good mental state. And just be careful with what you're touching and you know, make sure to, to sanitize yourself when you do get home, And which we have already been doing, but just as a, another warning for us, which I really appreciate that my friend sent this to me.
0: Okay, so you received the video and thank goodness that you did. You are horrified when you see it, of course. And then what did you do from there?
6: Well, even before I received the video, we have a building Facebook group. And somebody in that Facebook group took a photo of the elevator buttons when there had been the spit on it. Whoever posted that photo, um, the caption came along with it. I think this is, I think somebody spat on the elevator buttons. I'm not sure if it is, but what do you guys think? And so a couple of days later, I received this video and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because somebody actually did spin on, on it. And my first reaction was, okay, so if I have this video, that probably means that Strata has this video and the building manager has this video. So I'm just going to kind of wait a couple of days to see what they do. And uh, my friend that sent me the video who has the contact who gave him the video said, hey, the only thing that's... Strata was able to do was to find him and I think from what I can gather from other people I've been speaking to, Strata Councils can only do that. There's nothing more that they can do, which is understandable. They can't do anything more, you know, find him, okay, but that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me to feel safe in this building, to, to live here, knowing that somebody on the eighth floor on a space that everybody uses. And he could be spitting on every other public space within our building, along with all the other public spaces within our community. So it wasn't enough for me to just know that he was fined. So I called the police non-emergency line and they weren't able to do anything for me either. The police officers said they would not be able to arrest him because it's nothing criminal. It's not a criminal act, although you may feel like it is a criminal act, and I, and I do, because especially during this pandemic time, he may be a symptomatic carrier. We don't even know. So the most important kind of piece of information I want to take from this is that I feel like my safety and the safety of my family, the safety of everybody living in this building and within the community is compromised because this guy is out there intentionally spreading his germs on surfaces that people are touching on a daily basis and i feel like i am endangered and it's not a nice feeling to know that i'm not safe within my own apartment building
1: so to talk more with us about this now we're joined by nikki reitmeyer good morning nikki
0: Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, sometimes we see these videos, they go viral online, and it's someone doing something just atrocious. And I, I, I shy away from doing these types of stories typically because more often than not, it's someone with mental health problems. But we know with this video, that's not the case. No. This guy spits on the elevator buttons in his residential building. You can see a gob of spit Ew. hanging off the buttons via security camera footage. That's how disgusting this was. So you can understand that Maria was really upset when she saw this video as for the other residents in the building. So she contacts police. And what did the police say? Well, they said, and I quote, because I, I contacted police as well to follow up. They said the caller, Maria, was advised that unfortunately at this time, it is not a police matter as there is no criminal element to the investigation. The caller was advised to contact Strata and was given further advice as to where to go from here.
1: Okay, I don't, I don't really understand that because we just we talked to VPD last week, Nikki, and they told us that you know, a suspect who coughs on police get charged with uh, assault, right, of some kind. So is this not a similar situation where this person is really trying to potentially hurt other people?
0: Yeah, see, that's what confused me as well, because you're right. When we talked to police last week, they said, if you cough on the police, if you spit on the police in these times, you get charged with assault or aggravated assault. Yet in this case, they said, well, look, there's no crime. But we know the guy was intentionally trying to spread his germs by disrespecting the people in his building and spitting on the elevator door. But the police said, hey, sorry, there's no crime here that's been committed. That doesn't really jive for me.
1: No, it doesn't for me either. Uh, So I guess the other thing is here, you let social media go after him, right? You let the public do this work. And that certainly has been happening. He has been identified. Is that right?
0: Well, yes and no. So uh, he anonymously released a statement. So he is speaking, but who he is, well, we don't have a name. Uh, he remains anonymous. He did provide a little bit more insight, though, into why he did what he did with that statement. So he owns a unit in the building. So that's confirmed. He does live there. He said he was having some kind of conflict with the Strata Council. And then he said that he spit on the elevator buttons in a quote unquote fit of anger And then he added in his statement, I am horrified at my own actions, which are reprehensible and inexcusable.
1: Right. He said he said he was going to get counseling for his anger issues or whatever the case was. Exactly. So he
0: said that he's going to go get counselling, because obviously there are some some issues there that he needs to be working through. He said he's also going to make a meaningful donation, whatever that means, that's also in quotes, a meaningful donation to the Strata Council that will more than cover the cost of the extra sanitation required. Plus, I believe that he's receiving a fine from Strata as well for his actions. I would hope and His so. lawyer, who you've probably been hearing from in the news, his name is uh, Richard Fowler, he said, "Look, my client is just a regular guy who made a big mistake.
7: Normal young man who did something profoundly stupid that he instantly regretted, and um, of course is paying a big price right now."
1: Yeah. Okay. I agree with the, he'll be paying a big price, but I don't know if I would say this was like a momentary lapse in judgment because we were talking about it here amongst ourselves, Nikki. And I thought, you know, this person had to have thought about it. Right. And you can see from the footage, he looks both ways. He checks to make sure there's nobody around. Like there was a little bit of thought put into this.
0: Well, he had eight floors to think about it as he was riding that elevator up from the parkade until he got to his floor. And then, like you said, he kind of looks and to see if anyone's standing there and then boof and spits on the, on the buttons of the elevator. So, I mean, part of me, the sympathetic part of me, the bleeding heart part of me feels bad for this guy, knowing that he's ashamed to probably leave his unit now and even show his face in, in his hallways because of the stupid thing that he did. But on the other hand... A big part of me goes, you know, is a Strata Council fine enough for what this guy did, which is really disrespectful and inexcusable.
1: It is. He says, part of a part of his statement also included, I am employed, have never had any issues with law enforcement and am otherwise a good law abiding citizen. I can't explain my own actions in this situation. He said a public apology is not enough in this case. It is difficult to express how horrified I feel about my conduct, especially given the pandemic that worries everyone. So it sounds like there is some realization there.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the best you can hope for in a yeah, situation. At least he's self aware enough to go, look, I don't know what I did here, what yeah. I was thinking. I screwed up, but I want to move on and I want to make right what I did. So, you know, best case scenario, the guy is self aware enough to realize that he screwed up and he's not going to do it again.
1: One would hope. Okay, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simmy.
2: This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: Well, could there be a glimmer of hope for the Canadian oil and gas industry? So many people sure hope so. There was a major agreement reached over the weekend between global oil producers. So let's talk about what it all means. Joining us now is Derek DeClue, the Managing Editor of Bloomberg Canada. Derek, thanks for being here. Thank you. So is this a good thing and will this mean that there's some hope for the industry here?
8: Well, it's a start, uh, you know, cutting global oil production by about 10 million barrels a day. That's about 10 uh, percent of of uh, of normal production. Um, it does get us some way there toward a, a more balanced oil market. Uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, at least for the time being, while so many countries are under economic lockdown, uh, the demand has just been been killed. Um you have all the all of the normal demand for uh uh commuters and you know you the gasoline and diesel and so on. you have uh demand from the air travel industry that's all you know not quite vanished but but is is significantly lower and will be for some time so it, it's hard to say it's hard to look at this one deal and say. That it's just up from here for the oil industry. There is a long way to go on all of this,
1: right? So, does that cut in production the ten million barrels a day? Does that Mm -hmm. match the lack of demand that we're seeing? I thought demand was down greater than that.
8: It is, yes. So, like I said, it brings it closer to balance, but uh, uh, you know, and longer these lock. The problem is we don't exactly know how long the lockdowns are are going to go in the big oil consuming countries like the United States. Uh, so, the longer they go, the more likely you are to see an imbalance creep back into the market, in other words, demand to stay well below you know what it would normally be and when that happens, of course, um, you know oil producers have to uh, either turn down the pumps again, cut production again, or find places to to store oil uh, for another day when they can they can sell it at a higher price. there's only so much Capacity in in North America, you know, in Canada and in, and in the United States and elsewhere, um, for storing oil, these tanks are, are 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 you know not that many weeks away from getting full. So um, uh, yeah, the longer the lockdown goes, the more likely it is you will, and when the worse the outlook for the uh, for the virus, uh, the uh, the more likely it is you'll see prices creep back down, and then you you might find uh, uh OPEC having to come back to the table again for for further cuts.
1: Yeah, and what happened to that because the reason why we had seen this whole battle was uh you know Saudi Arabia and Russia not getting along. Have they kissed and made up? What's happening?
8: Well, I don't think they're ever going to be bosom buddies. Uh but they've they, they've recognized that uh, uh practically giving away oil, oil for nothing isn't good for for any country. Um and uh and so, for the time being they've let's call it a marriage of convenience uh the big sticking point in this conversation in in that negotiation last week was uh was actually mexico uh Mexico's relatively new president uh has a uh, made a point of saying he's going to reverse years of oil decline uh by the state oil producer uh Pemex. And he's going to, you know, open up the pumps. And so Mexico was very reluctant to to play along here and say that they would cut. In the end, they agreed to a small cut. And, uh, and the other OPEC uh, uh, producers kind of, alla- kind of allowed Mexico to get away with it. And that is how we got to a deal. But the history of OPEC, of course, is that it's a fractious group. Um, they agree to things, but then you know, some countries try to cheat on them, produce a little bit more right. uh, at the margin, and uh, and so agreements don't necessarily uh, always stick for long with OPEC. So we'll see.
1: What about prices? Then have they have they like improved as a result of this? Did they like what they saw?
8: Yeah, the market's relatively flat for oil this morning, uh, but a lot of the uh, price jumps anticipating this big uh, meeting. Uh, they had already happened in the last ten days or so. So you saw uh, world oil prices uh, uh, leap to more than uh, thirty dollars a barrel. Canadian oil prices uh, the week before last had had got a, a sort of temporary uh, big boost. They were extremely low, and of course they're still extremely low. Uh, so a lot of that, a lot of that uh, action in the market, if you will, happened anticipating this. The, the market is sort of. This morning saying, man, that was okay," but um, but it's not it it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, we're not driving uh, nearly as much. We're not flying nearly as much. Uh, There was there was a stat uh, recently that one day there were fewer than one hundred thousand people flying in the United States on that day. That's an extraordinarily low number. And as long as demand remains low, oil prices are going to stay low.
1: That certainly seems that way. I mean, I saw prices on the way in this morning, 92.9, which we haven't seen probably in 20 years, but that's still not going to be enough for people to go get gas if they don't have a job and don't have anywhere to go.
8: That's right. And, and even many people who are still working, they don't have to commute to, to their jobs. Yeah. I, I filled up my tank three weeks ago, and it's still almost full because I've only really been to the grocery store. So um, it, there's no... Um, there's no changing that until until the virus recedes and we can all start going places again.
1: So you don't think this production cut is going to really help improve things until the demand starts to bounce back?
8: That's right. I mean, it, like I said, it 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 has stopped oil prices from falling any further. Um, it has, yeah, you know, it, it has stopped us from the point where oil was in some parts of the world practically free um, at the yeah, at the wholesale level, but. Um, really in order to see prices move back up in a meaningful way, in a way that's going to help, for example, the oil producing regions of of Canada, you know, in in Alberta, primarily in Saskatchewan, uh, you have to have a return to, to something that looks more like normal
1: life. We'll see if that happens. Derek, thank you. Thank you. That's Derek DeClue, the managing editor of Bloomberg Canada, talking to us about the oil price kind of truce that they have reached. Uh, OPEC and other countries have agreed to cut their output uh, by almost 10%. It's something like 9.7 million barrels of oil per day. And it did allow prices to go up a little bit, but as Derek points out, Until we actually get demand back, which is far from happening right now, Uh, oil prices are seemingly destined to stay at about the same price that they are.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It is a situation cities across the country are facing. So many homeowners who can't afford to pay their property taxes – This has become such a stark reality that in Vancouver, at least, the mayor has said if they don't get financial help from the upper levels of government, the provincial government, the federal government, that the city is seriously looking at some insolvency. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver. Thank you for uh, joining us this morning.
9: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: I understand you did some polling on this. So how serious is the situation for people who can't pay their property taxes?
9: Well, uh, it's a serious economic situation for everybody in the city, and we found that almost half of residents had either had a uh, uh, drop in their um, incomes or have lost their jobs. So that's translated to people uh, not being able to pay their mortgages and also not being able to pay their rents. So that's you know my heart goes out to everybody. This is really a tough situation. Not just the uh, physical isolation and staying inside, but but also the economic impact. Now that also shifts over to the city as well. We found that uh, up to a quarter of of residents may not be you know would pay less than their than even half of their uh, property taxes or even none. And so that would could equate to a 320 million dollar loss for us this year if that happens. Uh, and coupled with the losses we're already facing uh, would be about you know could be up to a half a billion dollars and so cities can't run deficits right by law we can't mm-hmm. do that federal and provincial governments can we can't and so that means we have to immediately begin uh, shutting down services so we've uh, already laid off 1500 workers the city of surrey's laid off 2000 like this is starting to spread right across the country but we haven't cut into essential services yet uh, with 30 percent of our budget being spent on fire and police here in the city, Um, you know, if we had that kind of revenue loss, we'd have to, for example, move into laying off uh, firefighters, uh, having fewer police on the streets, uh, fewer permitting, uh, bio officers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, this isn't some kind of fantasy discussion. This is something that is already beginning to happen right across the country.
1: Is this something that Vancouver is planning for at this point? Like, are you putting together those worst case scenarios?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Last week, uh, we had a document put together by our, uh, chief financial officer and we're debating it at council tomorrow. What we're, what we're trying to offer residents or discussing is whether we extend a grace period for people to pay their property taxes. That's not a deferral, but it would give them some extra time to, to pay their property taxes instead of collecting them in July. Uh, we're proposing to protect, uh, collect them in September. However, uh, that still doesn't deal with a uh, default. So, um, you know that may help property owners, but that's about the best we can do. What we really need is for the province of British Columbia to use their their property uh, tax deferral mechanism, which usually applies to seniors, but to extend that to all residential, business, and non-profit. Uh, Tax-paying uh, property owners, so they can basically get a loan from the provincial government to pay their property tax.
1: Right. So the idea is, that as you said, Vancouver can't run a deficit as other cities cannot. Uh, would that help if, for one year, cities were allowed to do that?
9: Well, the reason why it works at the federal-provincial level is because they have ability to raise income tax or sales tax, but we don't have that ability. All we have is uh, property tax. And so, you know, every year we we hear that uh, we, you know, property tax usually goes up between four and seven percent. But if we had to increase it by twenty or twenty-five percent, I don't think that uh, that works at the local level. So unless we get additional tools from the from the upper levels of government, uh, then uh, we're really in a bind. And that's all of us. You're hearing it from Toronto. You're hearing it from Edmonton. Uh, some municipalities across Canada are already liquidating. Um, uh, property to pay their bills. Um, and, of course, that would be something that we could look at here, too. Instead of building that park that everybody wanted, we sell it to a developer and they build private property on it or something. So that's those are the kind of situations we're facing in the very uh, near run if w- these property tax defaults What uh, about are, these
1: other mechanisms you talked about? Like, what do you think would help?
9: Well, uh, you know, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the big city mayors um, Uh, you know, that that I uh, caucus with across the country, we're we're all saying basically we need an immediate upfront uh, influx of cash. Um, You know, I did ask the provincial government for that last week. Apparently that's not on the table. So we're going to have to now turn to them and say, well, how are you going to help us? Because at this point, we've heard nothing.
1: But you said even with that influx of cash, you asked for $200 million. You're talking about a half a billion dollar deficit. That's still a pretty huge hole. What else is on the table in Vancouver? What programs are, are being cut already?
9: Well, of course, all the uh, community centers, uh, you know, park board facilities are all closed. Uh, we've, you know, we tried to get some staff to work from home. But if they can't do their job at home, then they've been laid off. Uh, but, again, 30% of our budget is police and fire, and most of those services, uh, you know, uh, most of those operating funds go into personnel. It goes on the officer on the beat. It goes on into the firefighter or paramedics that, uh, you know, are so important during these, this uh, crisis. But, um, you know, we, uh, money speaks for itself, right? I mean, if, if we can't pay their salaries, then we have to lay them off.
1: So what about the Rainy Day Fund, though? There's been a lot of criticism directed Mm -hmm. at the city saying, you know, you guys didn't adequately plan for this. There wasn't enough of a a fund put aside just in case something bad really did happen.
9: No, we do have reserves, um, for sure. And we could burn through those first. uh, Then we could sell property. Uh, so we have, but the, Euro, you know, the reserves come from property tax increases. So every year we hear, oh, you're raising property taxes so high, and we try to balance that. Uh, but uh, you know we try to balance it so to, to fit with the public mood and our needs. But uh, the only way you build up reserves is by increasing property taxes, and uh, so or that's the by- dilemma we're in. And so we've we've been prudent. I mean, but this is an extraordinary set of circumstances for us to handle and it never never really happened in the city's history um and uh so it calls for extraordinary measures from city senior levels of government as well
1: okay so changing projects as well too right like you're moving forward a lot of projects and that city of vancouver was working on will they not happen
9: oh yeah i mean if you show up to build that deck on your back uh you know in the back of your house uh all those permitting, all those permitting people, people in the planning department—they're all paid by property taxes. But
1: what about right? capital and, projects that the city was working on?
9: Well, capital projects—you uh, know—they're they're a separate budget. However, we still need people to work on those projects. So all the engineers, all the people that—you uh, know—you think you take the Granville Bridge for example, refurbishing that, but if we have to lay off the engineers that are overseeing it. Then that project grinds to a halt too. Um, this isn't just for this year. If this goes on, uh, it, it moves into next year. And what, it, what, it, Why I'm flagging it so early is it seriously threatens our economic recovery. You know, if you can't get a business license from the city to open your new business, you can't operate and you can't generate the revenues that you need, to, you know, that our whole economy needs. So we are a crucial link in the supply chain when it comes to our economy. And I don't think that part uh, has been yet addressed by the federal or provincial governments. Has
1: you know, there been- you can- Yep. Any, any thought to the city of Vancouver issuing some fines to people when it comes to social distancing? We talked about this protest that happened yesterday. People not following the rules. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, to that?
9: the park board is. I think they've got it right here. Like the only way we're going to get through this is by coming together as a group. And I think other cities have found that that fines just you know you can send symbolic messages, but it doesn't really help if your if your population's ignoring uh, health orders for their own health. Um, you know, that it's very hard to enforce uh, across a whole city. However, uh, I think the park board's got it right. They have their champions out uh, on the seawall, for example. If they see people that aren't uh, physically distancing, they go over and remind them. And most people have just forgotten. They're excited to see their friend or maybe a family member, and they momentarily forget. And I think we've all kind of, you know, had that inclination uh, to give, you know, to give your in-laws a hug or something, but uh, you've just got to stop it. And most of it is well-intentioned. 99% of the folks here are doing what they should be doing. And I'm so proud of uh, everybody for, for for how they're handling this, uh, really this uh, incredible situation.
1: And up next, then, what is the next um, option you have? Meetings with the provincial government? What's going to happen?
9: Well, we have a council meeting tomorrow that we will uh, decide whether or not to give uh, property taxpayers a, a grace period. So instead of paying in July, we can defer that until their payments until uh, until September. And that would provide some relief. Uh, you know, I think we're all hoping for an early recovery from this emergency. But that, uh, you know, that, that, that that's really what we need. Uh, otherwise, you know, The city is going to be a very different place in
2: the coming months.
1: All right, Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: What's been tough for a lot of people during this isolation and and self quarantine is the fact that so many recreation areas have also closed down. Provincial parks are now off limits. There's just fewer places to go and enjoy the outdoors, even if you were saying to yourself, I'm going to leave lots of distance between myself and the next person out there. Well, the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC is also worried about that lack of options, particularly for people who don't have a whole lot of outdoor space to begin with. Joining us now is Louise Patterson. Of uh, the executive director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC, Louise. Thanks for being
10: here. Thank you very much for having me on the show.
1: Well, have you been hearing about this concern from people?
10: Yeah, we've definitely. I mean, I, I'm I'm one. I live in an apartment building. Um, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of concern that you know one one park system after another is is is, is closing down, and it just it just leaves very little space for. For each of us to to go to, especially as we've been, uh, you know, we've been told to to stay home or stay in our local area. Um, so yeah, no, it is it is it is greatly concerning.
1: So what would be the solution here, Louise? Because I know the problem is that people weren't listening.
10: Yeah, no. So the Outdoor Recreation Council is a we are a charity. We are an umbrella organization of. Um, organizations such as uh, you know the hikers, the paddlers, the quad riders and so on, and so on. And together, I mean, we've definitely been, I, and I've seen our uh, our members doing a great job at, at educating uh, you know their members and their local communities. But yeah, like a lot more has to be done to to educate British Columbians so that we all you know um, you know practice safe um, social distancing, distancing, and that we don't gather in, in groups and that sort of thing. So what what can be done? Yes, I mean, so we are concerned that you know as you. Kind of closing down more parks you know it's going to be even more difficult to uh, to to be safe in um, in in the remaining parks so we are we are ho- i mean hopefully there there'll be some 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 creative solutions to this so that um i mean maybe more more space can be opened up i know that sandy park has done you know a really interesting uh, uh, taken this this step to to closing down for for, for cars and and uh, for bicycles i right. guess on on, on on the seawall i mean that there are there are cities all around the world that are doing uh, such things right now. They're closing down riverside parkways, uh, roads to uh, to traffic, so that you know people who who live in, ur- in urban areas can uh, can recreate can, can get outside, get some fresh air uh, in a in a in a safe way. Uh, because as, you know, as, as you know too, you know, like. Um, walking along the sidewalk these days is, is you know, it's, it's not uh, especially conducive to, to pressing social or physical no. distancing. It's kind of hard to kind of get a, around other people. And also, I mean, it is really encouraging that people want to get outside, and it's such a good counterbalance to, uh, you know, all the time that we are spending inside our own homes. It's so good for our, all of us on, on a lot of different levels. Right. You know, families with children, individuals, you know, like, uh, you know, when we get outside, we might not be able to get very close to other people, but we, we can at least, like, you know wave high, and you know there's there's a lot of benefit even just seeing other people
1: louise do you think that's the key here then like i know you've put out some information on this as well like if more people respected the physical distancing as a very strict rule do you think that would be helpful perhaps in getting a few parks reopened
10: yeah definitely hoping that, uh, that that would be the case and i think one of the one of the things that, that I think is working really well is to have people at park heads and in, um, or oh, trailheads, sorry, and in, in parks, just, you know, educating park users about, uh, you know, just the importance. And, you know, I think it's, I don't think people really want to disobey these rules. I think they just sort of like forget and they get so, um, you know, excited about being outside. So I think having, you know, it could be volunteers, it could be, uh, you know, park staff, um, having them outside and, and just sort of like reminding people to, to space out. And I think it's also for all of us to just kind of look for, you know, m- maybe there are other times of the day where we could kind of go out. Let's maybe not all go out at one o'clock, but, you know, go out <laughs> like, uh, you know, a little early, early in the day. The days are really long. Go head outside, you know, during during the evening where there's not a lot of uh, people on the trails. So I think that's definitely a lot that we can all do. But I think also, you know, within our parks, you know, just having people there to sort of like remind everybody to um, To be safe, Uh, you know, we'll we'll go a long way to to keeping our parks open.
1: More supervision than you're saying?
10: Uh, Yeah, yeah, just education, supervision, yeah, for sure.
1: All right, Louise, thank you very much.
10: Thank
1: you very much. Louise Patterson, uh, the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. Uh, They think that there needs to be a little bit more outdoor kind of park access for people with more supervision. Uh, We heard that the Park Board in Vancouver, they have people out and about just reminding people like a little more space between you over there. Please keep your social distancing. Uh, Maybe that would do the trick because in the beginning, we just had way too many people who weren't following those social distancing rules. But are we ready to open a few parks? back up, do you
2: think people would listen? This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I think right now we're kind of really stuck in the present, aren't we? Uh, We kind of long for the past, all those good old days when we could socialize and see each other and you think about the future and you're just not sure at this point when you're going to be able to do any of that again. But there are people out there who want to make sure that we also preserve this moment in history and they want to do that with your journal. Now, it may not be as common as it used to be, but there are still plenty of people out there who keep a daily journal. And a museum in Trail actually would like to encourage you to do that because they would like to make an exhibit out of the journals that people keep during this pandemic. Uh, we're joined now by the Museum and Archives Manager with the City of Trail, Sarah Benson-Lord. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So you're really looking ahead to that moment in time when we can look back on this.
11: Absolutely. Um, I think with the um, immediate amount of media we're getting on a daily basis, um, and how much we're consuming so very quickly, our emotions and our feelings are changing so rapidly, and maybe how we're conducting ourselves is changing that rapidly. Um, To be able to sort of capture... You know, even in a weekly format, not necessarily daily, but a weekly format, how our lives are changing is just a fascinating um, exercise.
1: I guess this would be a lot like people who wrote letters to each other, right, during uh, different historical events, whether it was World War One or World War II or whatever, but we don't have that record of letters anymore.
11: Oh, well, we certainly
1: do. Well, I mean, <laughs> we have, in the present um, day, people don't write letters to each other anymore. That's that's
11: very true, unless you're capturing, you know, social media um, threads or, or emails. But that's very true. There's something very um, almost romantic about a handwritten letter. And um, this reminded me of some letters we received um, last year, over 200 from a World War One soldier back to his family. And we created an exhibit. And just before the end of the war in, in November of 1918, the Spanish flu hit trail pretty hard. Um, and one of the comments back from, from the soldier's father was, we'd love to be celebrating the end of the war, but there's so much death here right now. Um, so really pivotal world, uh, global moments like that are impacted by, by other horrible things. And for that to be captured in writing, you know, it kind of gives you pause, like what, what was going on here? How were people feeling?
1: Yeah. And if we don't record it now with people's thoughts and, you know, memories and recollections, how are we going to remember it in the future?
11: Well, and I don't even remember how I was feeling last week because the news is changing so rapidly. So I wonder even from the perspective of somebody in the media like yourself who's, who's, who's reporting this, um, how, how it's impacting uh, people in the field.
1: Oh, wow, you're asking me. Okay, I can answer sure. that question. <laughs> uh, you know what, you're right about that, though. We're used to the news being very fast paced, but nothing, we've ne- we haven't we have seen anything like what we have seen with this particular mm-hmm. story. And it's hard, because there's so many different versions of this story. But you also don't want to hit people over the head with the negative stuff all the time, right?
11: That's really true. And I think um, we've all got varying degrees of severity. Um, So based on our own personal circumstances, so certain people who are still at work, um, but then facing perhaps the threat of a disease or people that have been laid off and facing the threat of being unable to pay their mortgage. So no one is immune to this situation. That's what's so remarkable about it.
1: So Sarah, how can people help out? Though I'm, I'm thinking this is a great idea, but what do you need from people?
11: Uh, like I say, it doesn't necessarily have to be daily, but even sitting down at night with your kids or over the phone with, with with your parents who may be in a care home or far away, just start capturing how you're feeling, even if it's weekly. Write it in a word document. We don't care if it's a, if it's in digital format. Um, just start keeping a record of how you feel. Your life is changing, or how certain conveniences are being being taken away. Um, we know when people journal. You're journaling in the in the uh, thought that no one's going to read this. We are going to read this. Um, Privacy can be respected. Those are all things we can, we can talk about, and if a donation it would be imminent. Um, but that's the kind of stuff we want to be able to capture. This is a social record, and yeah. um, we're, we're making history right now.
1: So where can people send this, or where can they find more information?
11: Well, they could give me a shout. They can contact us um, here in Trail at the museum, or contact your own museum. Um, most of our collections policies uh, have us uh, retaining Um, papers or artifacts that are pertinent to our own communities Um, but I know there are going to be other museums doing this this wasn't my idea that is a disclaimer I'll put out there this wasn't my (laughs) idea it's an idea that's been floating around the BC Museums Association listserv for a while but we thought we'd get a heads up on it we don't know what this collection is going to look like we have no idea until uh, things start coming in and we don't want things right now we
1: want you to we want it compiled I love this idea all right Sarah I hope you get lots of submissions thanks so much for joining us Thank you very much. Things were a little busy in Ottawa over the weekend where Parliament was sitting, working to pass that wage subsidy bill. Let's find out how that went. Joining us now, David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So is help on the way for businesses across Canada? Yeah,
3: it looks that way. I mean, we're still looking for specific rollout dates, but the latest we heard from the Finance Minister was uh, this wage subsidy program will be up and running within, you know, as fast as possible, but it may not be until the middle of May. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for businesses. I know they're desperate to get this. The good news is once this wage subsidy program does go into effect, it will be retroactive to March the 15th. So you'll be able to essentially, if you had laid off employees um, or, you, or you're or you're borrowing essentially to pay the bills, uh, you can get some uh, relief backdated to March the 15th.
1: Okay, and was there any problem getting this passed on the weekend? Things went smoothly?
3: Not really. No, it went very smoothly. I mean, don't forget, a month ago when we had the first time that we had this parliament of 40 people uh, show up, uh, the opposition was surprised by some stuff in the legislation the government put forward. The opposition was a bit suspicious this time around. And when I say opposition, that's NDP, conservatives, everybody. But uh, this time around, there was no surprises in the legislation. Uh, Basically, there was unanimous agreement that this was going to pass even before the House of Commons uh, sat. So it was really just sort of a pro forma sitting, ran a couple of hours, some speeches, Senate jumped in, gave it approval, uh, all done in an afternoon.
1: Okay. And is this then the way Parliament's going to look for the next little while, David, with this kind of uh, smaller version of it with 40 people there?
3: Uh, it, it looks like it. At least that's what the opposition is saying that it ought to look like, that we still should meet that when I say we, the House of Commons MP should still meet in person. Uh, for instance, if they say if, if ministers can stand in front of the press every day at noon, as they've been doing with six feet apart, and answer questions from reporters, there's no reason they can't just move uh, a few feet over into the House of Commons and do the same. That press conference you're seeing every day around noon Eastern time is held in West Block, uh, as they say, it's it's literally a 30-second walk from the House of Commons. Um, so the opposition is saying, why not just head over to the House of Commons and stand there and take questions from MPs? Now, the government says they'd like to find some other way, perhaps to do it virtually, because, yes, MPs are sitting separate from each other. But when you run the House of Commons, you still have to have staff and clerks Uh, to uh, support the work of MPs. And, uh, you know, this represents an increased risk for them in this age when we're trying to say everybody stay home from work if you Mm -hmm. can. So that's still a a very much a question uh, sort of up for debate about how uh, Parliament is to function in this time. We do know that uh, House of Commons committees are meeting by teleconference. We've seen the House of Commons Finance Committee meet a few times. We've seen the Health Committee meet to discuss various issues Uh, I can't say it's it's smooth running. I've tried to cover some of those teleconferences (laughs) and the the technical problems are just ridiculous. But uh, they're trying to work through them as best they can.
1: And how how receptive do you think the federal government is at this point to the call from cities now across Canada saying they need help, they need federal money?
3: Yeah, that's going to be a new headache for the federal government. And I suspect we're going to want to put some questions to uh, some ministers today. Of course, you know, we're all seeing the big news yesterday that uh, Kennedy Stewart, uh, of course, Vancouver's mayor, standing... Uh, saying yesterday that uh, Vancouver could be in such dire financial straits it may have to declare bankruptcy somewhere down the road. This on the results of a survey that the city did that said as many as 25% of ratepayers may not be able to pay the rest of their property tax bills. And I think, as everybody knows, uh, cities, municipalities, not just in B.C., but elsewhere in the, in the country, uh, cannot borrow their way through yeah. a crisis like this. Provinces can run up deficits. The federal government can run up deficits. Cities can't. So uh, we'll see. Of course, I'm also noting that there are the uh, political opponents of Mayor Stewart. I know to Kirk LaPointe, for example, the former mayoral candidate saying maybe the city ought to take a look at its spending and cut some pet projects and so on and so on. So this is a debate we're going to have. First, it's going to happen at city councils. Then it may happen in provincial legislatures. And finally, it may happen at the federal right. level as well.
1: And so when is the next sitting then for the House?
3: Really don't know. That's up to the uh, the call of the speaker. That's sort of the way it works. Uh, they, they, there is some idea to maybe have it on April 20th. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but uh, uh, that's just still sort of TBD.
1: All right. We will see. David, thank you.
3: Okay, thanks, Simi. Cheers.
1: David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, talking about Ottawa over the weekend. Actually, things going quite smoothly, getting that wage subsidy bill passed. Uh, But for government, or for businesses, I should say, what it means is you're still waiting for cash. And it sounds like it still could be another couple of weeks. However, it will be retroactive to the middle of March.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. We shouldn't be worried about our own food security. The pressure, though, is actually quite significant. Uh, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect perfection at this time. We are in the middle of a crisis, so you should expect to see empty shelves here and there, but there's always food on the way.
1: That is Professor Sylvain Charlebois. He was on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson, and he is an expert on food safety, distribution, and security. Now, I think there are two areas of activities that people are really focused on during this quarantine era that we are living in. One is the outside. Right, doing yard work, gardening, do-it-yourself projects, that kind of thing. The other is most definitely inside, as in inside the kitchen, probably baking up a storm. It would help explain why so many people are having trouble finding flour at the grocery store. I finally found some on the weekend after I saw nothing but empty shelves for weeks. Now, all of that makes us ask, is there a shortage? Is it a supply problem or what's being done about this? Well, I had a chance to speak with Taylor Gemmel, who's the owner of Anita's Organic Grain and Flour Mill, about what's been going on for them and how it's affecting their business. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. I I have to ask you, what is the deal? Why can nobody find flour on the shelves of grocery stores in Vancouver?
4: I think it's all in people's homes right now. Um Seriously, I, th- I think what's happening is, is there's such a demand right now, uh, people baking at home, that stores just can't keep it on the shelves. It's not a supply issue. Um, I know we've, we've got supply. It's just working through the food chain, uh, going through distribution, onto the shelves, and being able to just stock the shelves fast enough. I think that's the, the main problem right now. So, It's not your, a supply issue. I know that for sure.
1: Has your company then been asked to supply more and like do more, give us more?
4: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we've we've increased our production um, by about 75 percent, increased our employees by um, we've just doubled our employees uh, since since COVID happened. Uh, So, yeah, demands just skyrocketed. Um, So we've we've done everything we can to reach um, all of our suppliers demands.
1: So you're one of those companies then tailored that's actually been hiring during all of this.
4: Yeah, we feel so grateful to be in the position that we're in. Um, I, th- I think we're already a great place for people to work in the Chilliwack community. Um, but now, you know, with this happening, we've yeah, we've had to hire more people, um, giving people an opportunity to work uh, in this community, and it feels really good to be in that position. So we're providing a, a great workspace for people, uh, clean environments. It's a food safe facility, as it always has been. Uh, But we're taking extra measures now just to ensure all of our employees are as safe as possible.
1: Are there particular products that are in higher demand than others? Like, what are you producing so much
2: of?
4: Um, Well, all the staples, like white flour, is increased by a lot. Um, But all the whole grains as well, like all the whole grains that we manufacture, they're flying off the shelf, uh, whole grain flours. Um, Everything that we do is organic. So, I mean, that's good to see that people are just... Um, you know going after good food as well not just um, not just the cheapest food on the shelf right um, and yeah our, our all of our suppliers all our farming partners uh, across western Canada um, we've got long-term relationships with with all of them and they are really um, they've really helped us through this through this time as well um, just supplying everything that we need as fast as as fast as they can as well
1: do you think this is going to last, or are baking habits that we've gotten into right now something that are going to hang around, do you think?
4: Um, I would, yeah, I, I really think they, they will. I mean, once people start baking more, I don't see why they would stop. I mean, it's such a fun thing to do. It's, it's great to do with family. It's, it's rewarding. Um, you know, it's, it's a back-to-basic thing that um, we've done for forever. Uh, so I think once people start baking again, I don't see why they'd stop. I mean, uh, it's such a fun thing to do.
1: Oh, listen, I'm with you. I was a baker. I've always been a baker, but it's so funny to, try to get regular supplies and go, where did all the stuff go? It's always been here. I'm no, sure. it's not there right now. Uh, are you worried, though, yeah. about if this does end, that there might be too much supply out there?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a major concern for us. Um, we're keeping an eye on that as much as we can. Um my feeling personally is people are actually going through it. I mean, they're they're buying a lot of flour, but, you know, you can't go to eat. You're making a lot of your own food. Um, so I think people are actually going through the product they're buying. Um, and when this is all over, um, they're, they're going to have to continue to buy from the store. I mean, it's, it's, but it is a concern. We'll see what happens. But that's, that's my general thoughts on it right now.
1: All right. Well, listen, Taylor, thanks for your time on this.
4: I uh, appreciate it, Cindy. Thank you very much.
1: As Taylor Gammel, owner of Nita's Organic Grain and Flour Mill, yes, they are uh, grinding that flour, bagging it as fast as they possibly can to get it to people, but the demand is really great right now. If you want to weigh in, I mean, if you've tried shopping for this, what's the thing that you're looking for that you find is no longer on the shelf?
2: This is Mornings with Cindy.
1: Let's take a moment and check in with Nikki Reitmeyer, see how she's doing. Good morning, Nikki.
0: Good morning, Simi. Do you find that when you go to the grocery store, particularly these days, perhaps more than any other time before, when you come home, you always have a story about something weird that happened (laughs) at the grocery store?
1: Well, yeah, I went to go to Costco on Friday. That was the first time I had gone to Costco in months, probably hadn't gone since late January. I spent about 45 minutes in the lineup. And I know, I know. But you know what? It was like a lineup at Disneyland. It it moved <laughs> constantly. So it's not like you were standing there for a long period of time. It seemed like it was really long once you got into it, but it moved along um, pretty well. And I just have to give the people a shout out. Like grocery stores, all of them. Uh, I was so impressed at Costco with the number of people they had employed just to manage that lineup. Like so many people. You know how you're always afraid that somebody's going to cut in or yeah. somebody's not going to respect the social distance? Distancing. No, no, they had people all over it. Like it was just so well organized. Even when you got in the store, they had people walking up and down the aisle with big signs saying, like, respect the social distancing. And but it it, it was impressive, but it just still gave you that feeling, like, I just want to get my stuff and get out of here. So I do find grocery shopping to be a bit stressful, yes.
0: Yeah, no, it's nice that they had so many people on hand uh, who could help reduce some of that stress, ease some of that stress, because I find even just going into the grocery stores these days, it's tense. Everybody feels tense.
1: It is. I I felt like I had to smile. The person behind me was grumbling because they were really mad about how long the lineup was. But I actually said to him, you know, it was worse the day before because I had gone the day before and it was too long the day before and I had given up. (laughs) And so I was like trying to be funny about it. But yeah, he wasn't having any of that. So yeah, there's a lot of tension.
0: Yeah, no, I found some, some levity in my grocery store shop on Friday as well. I, I tried just to go once a week. Yeah. So I, I find myself going to Safeway just on Fridays. So, you know, I had my grocery list with me and, and I was going around the store. And yeah, I mean, you're laughing with other shoppers because, you know, you're trying to get to one spot in the aisle and they're trying to get to the other yeah. and you kind of have to do this six foot tango dance. to sort of get around each other.
1: <laughs> That's adorable.
0: Um, so I get up to the, the checkout though. So I've got my groceries. You know, we get up to the checkout. And you're all distancing where the, the, where the markers are. And of course you can't go any further until the person who has gotten their groceries and they paid for the groceries until they've left. And then the next person can step right. up. And, Cause
1: and they wipe it all down, right? Procedure. Like they wipe down the conveyor belt and everything. So
0: yeah. Oh yeah. They do a great job there. And so he has his groceries, you know, ready to be put into the cart and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and he's kind of screwing around at the end there. We don't really know what he's up to. And then we see, and the woman that's working behind the till is watching this, as are the other customers in line. He slowly but surely opens up a box of cookies that he's purchased, takes a cookie, puts it in his mouth, puts a couple groceries into the carts. Then he takes another cookie. He eats that one as well. And we're all standing there going like... <laughs> Are you out of your mind?
1: <laughs> Listen, I will side with this person. Maybe he's had like he was crashing. And again, I'm Friday. The same thing happened to me, Nikki. I went straight after work. I was, you know, lineup was an hour long, but I was starving, and I had really my I get hangry, you know, and so. <laughs> My blood sugar was dropping in the store, which is the most horrible time to go grocery shopping. And so I put into my, I went home. And my husband was like, "What? What is like? What is this giant jar of cashews that you bought? And what is this huge container of milk chocolate covered raisins?" Well, I had to open the chocolate covered raisins in the store and eat some just to get myself into <laughs> so the fight. Yeah, of course I bought that. <laughs> I was going to buy them anyway. They were in my cart, but I was like, I'm just going to open these because I'm starving. So maybe he just the stress of waiting in line and all of that he just had to dig in I'm sure you've done that before haven't you?
0: Uh, not when there's a whole row of tense people waiting for me to get my butt out of the store. I'm not sitting there eating cookies at the at the checkout counter. I maybe snuck a grape or two while I was shopping from my
1: own cart, but <laughs> uh, from your own cart though—that's from your own cart, yes.
0: Well, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not like Aladdin walking around the store just grabbing apples and eating <laughs> them as I feel. So
1: <laughs> you know, my uh, other local grocery store, Stongs, where I normally go to shop—you know, once a week—they um, keep a section of the in the produce section. They keep a little section. Of fruit like a banana, some grapes, uh, an apple for kids, for parents who have oh, little really? kids who might get hungry during the store. And they've got a little sign there, which I think is really cute.
0: That is actually quite adorable because, as we know too, kids have uh, the tendency to grab at food that maybe doesn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. belong to them that they weren't. Yeah. yeah, parents weren't expecting to buy anyway. So, no, that's very cute. Uh, over on Vancouver Island, I think this is kind of interesting. The city of Langford has purchased 40,000 masks, face masks. And some of them they distributed to hospitals and frontline workers. But the rest of them, they said they're going to sell to grocery stores nice. that have remained open during the pandemic. Yeah, they're going to sell them at cost. I thought this was kind of interesting because sometimes when you go to the grocery store, uh, well, most often now you see the plexiglass the plexiglass wall up. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you see the grocery store workers wearing masks and gloves. But it's my understanding at this point, it's pretty much optional. And it remains optional in Langford as well. But they are strongly advising that grocery stores purchase these masks for their employees. So it's not a bylaw yet, but Mayor Stuart Young said, look, we're really hoping that you purchase these masks off us. Uh, And he is really passionate about this idea as well. Listen to this.
7: If it comes from droplets, why are we not wearing masks? And then, of course, the government is saying, well, don't wear masks because they were short of masks. They weren't really transparent in that. You know, you don't have enough test kits and you don't have enough masks. Then they kind of sort of said, oh, you don't really need to have masks because there wasn't any. And that would have really hurt the frontline healthcare workers because everybody would have went out and bought medical masks. So what I'm telling everybody, don't you ever go buy a medical mask. Leave that for the frontline workers. But if you've got secondary masks that, you know, stop the spread, maybe use spreading it. So we had one quick meeting. We ordered 40,000 masks. We gave 10,000 donated to the hospital. We gave out a bunch to all the fire departments around us and first responders or anybody who wanted it. And then we put for sale, if you're an essential business that's for profit, we put the mass for sale. At $1.50, we bought 7,000 face shields. We're going to offer them up to the businesses. I think we got them for you know, between $4 and $7. Uh, so we'll have enough now to have every cashier have one. And if the business wants to uh, voluntarily participate, we strongly suggest they do. Where the most people congregate is actually in these stores, buying groceries
1: and buying food and buying stuff. That's a really good point. That is where people congregate.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's t- typically where I'm around the most people these days. You know, otherwise I'm at my home or I'm going for a walk around the block with my dogs. But whenever I'm actually engaging with people, for the most part, it's it's when you're at the grocery store. And these poor grocery store workers, you know, they have to work in these conditions in a day after day after day after day. So I think that many would probably be encouraging their employers to participate in this program yeah. Where they're buying the masks off the city and clever. The city purchased the masks. So they said, look, we have a supply of them. We've given some to frontline workers already. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're trying to not affect that supply and you can come to us and you can purchase these masks at costs and at cost and then distribute them to your employees.
1: I think that is an excellent idea. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Anish. There certainly was a feeling out there from people I heard from so many of you on Friday saying you know that your neighbors had traveled or you your parkade seemed empty at your condo building. Uh, So there was this feeling that people were traveling. Well, where were they going? Were they going to places like Tofino? Well, they were prepared for that if that were the case. So let's find out how that went. Joining us now is the mayor of Tofino, Josie Osborne. Good morning. Good morning. So what measures did Tofino take to deal with this potential influx of people?
5: Well, we've been trying to message very strongly for the past three weeks to ask our visitors to book their vacations later to Tofino and to stay at home. So leading up to the long weekend, we sent out yet another message strongly urging second homeowners and visitors to please stay home and not come to the West Coast. And then on Thursday and Friday afternoons, we actually had some terrific support from our local RCMP detachments and the Parks Canada Warden Service, and they set up a little checkpoint for people coming into town and asking uh, where they were coming from and where they were going and what they were doing. So how many people showed up? Well, we they intercepted about 50 different vehicles on both Thursday and Friday afternoons, and right now we actually have the uh, fortune, I guess, at this point to have the project, the big construction project happening at Kennedy Hill. And that means that people have to wait to get through that project, and it's quite easy to get a a number of vehicles at once. So with the 50 vehicles on Thursday and 50 on Friday, um, the vast majority of them were local residents returning home or essential workers coming out to return
1: to work. Okay, that's good. But did you get any tourists? It was good. Uh, We
5: did still get a handful of second home owners and a few tourists. Um, my understanding is that of the tourists that were coming out, quite a few of them were, I mean, literally just out for a drive. Uh, They wanted something to do, and then they were cooped up at home, and they thought they'd go for a drive, and they thought they'd come to the end of the road. So most of them didn't seem to have plans or a place to stay, which is not surprising because most places are closed right now. And the uh, conversations that they had with the RCMP officers and the park wardens convinced quite a few of them to turn around and go home.
1: Okay, so that's good. Do you think this is something you're going to have to keep up, though?
5: Well, I this is a good question. And I think this weekend was a bit of a litmus test for us. It, it certainly was uh, pretty dead in town. And very few people, I tried to speak to as many people as I could this weekend. You know, hey, did you see any visitors? Did you know right. of any tourists in town? And uh, I it went, it went better than I expected, quite frankly. And I think um, that, that maybe helps us understand that the future weekends are hopefully not too much of a concern, that British Columbia really does seem to be getting the message, and those last few people that didn't seem to be uh, reachable are, are now being reached.
1: Okay, and is this something, so you're going to wait and see, maybe use this for, what, May long weekend? Yeah, that's right. So we'll continue with the messaging, and
5: uh, of course listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry every day and trying to get some ideas and hints as to you know, what the future holds for us. But right now we're holding the line just as she's asked
1: us to do. So was that for, were you monitoring everything? Like there's a little airport in Tofino as well, isn't there?
5: Yes, there is an airport in Tofino and it is open. Airports are part of the essential transportation network that we need right now for supply lines and uh, possibly for medical evacuations if that was needed. So the airport is open and uh, messaging is also going out to anybody who does arrive, which is very, very few people Um, about the fact that everything is closed
1: here. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, Simi. That is the mayor of Tofino, Josie Osborne, letting us know what they were doing to prevent people from coming to the town. They don't have an actual legal authority to block people from entering Tofino, but they set up a checkpoint to let them know, listen, there's no place for you to stay, right? Everything is closed, and uh, we'd actually love to have you back another time. And she said uh, most people definitely heeded that.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, you may have heard or read something about this next story on the weekend. I mean, the video of this just infuriates people and with very good reason. It shows a man, it's security footage uh, from inside of a residential building elevator, and it shows a man spitting on the buttons of the elevator and then walking out. And the reason we know this is because Marie Hui lives in the building. It happened in Olympic Village. And so she described to our Nikki Reitmeyer what she saw in that video.
6: The video shows a man getting into the elevator, coming in from one of the parking levels. He uses his fob to press on his own floor. He rides the elevator, rides the elevator until he reaches his floor. And he kind of waits until the doors open, kind of sees if there's anybody waiting at the elevator door. And as soon as he kind of sees that there's nobody there, he spits on the elevator buttons and then he walks right out. That is absolutely horrifying. It's disgusting. It's, it's just, deplorable behavior for any time in, in history, you know, when it comes to a pandemic, this is even more concerning.
0: Yeah, it is. And you know, I saw some people online saying, you know, there's no way that this guy could live in the same building where he would spit on his own elevator doors. And it must be a food delivery guy because in the video, you can see him carrying a white plastic bag and it looks like there might be containers or something inside. But you said no, based on what the evidence shows, it looks like this guy actually does live in the building.
6: Yeah. So, if he was somebody that was delivering food, he would be coming in from the main floor. That would be the street level. So, the floor that he came on to the elevator from is a parking level. That parking level also has guest, like visitor parking. But uh, I know that in this building, you have to go and meet your guests down in P1. So, he wouldn't be by himself if he was a guest. He also had a fog, right? So, Guests wouldn't have a fob either. So either somebody gave him the fob or he is a resident in this building. But I can't say for certain. I can't be 100% certain about this because I don't know who he is. I've never seen him before. And I can't really do my own investigation here. I'm not going to be knocking on everybody's door on the floor. I can't even get up to the floor.
0: So how did you come across the video? Because it looks like it's security footage from a security camera inside the elevator.
6: Yeah, so it looks like security footage for sure. There was nobody else in that elevator. A friend of mine, he saw this video and he got it from somebody else. So I don't know who that somebody else is. But he saw this video and he felt like he needed to share this with me because he knows I live here, I have a one-year-old, and he sent it to me because he wanted us to be warned. He wanted to caution us. If you see this guy anywhere, just stay away from him. He doesn't look like he's in a good mental state. And just be careful with what you're touching. And, you know, make sure to, to sanitize yourself when you do get home, And which we have already been doing, but just as a, another warning for us, which I really appreciate that my friend sent this to me.
0: Okay, so... You received the video, and thank goodness that you did. You are horrified when you see it, of course. And then what did you do from there? Well, even before
6: I received the video, we have a building Facebook group. And somebody in that Facebook group took a photo of the elevator buttons when there had been the spit on it. Whoever posted that photo, um, the caption came along with it I think this is, I think somebody spat on the elevator buttons. I'm not sure if it is, but what do you guys think? And so a couple of days later, I received this video and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because somebody actually did spin on, on it. And my first reaction was, okay, so if I have this video, that probably means that Strata has this video and the building manager has this video. So I'm just gonna kind of wait a couple of days to see what they do. And uh, my friend that sent me the video who has the contact who gave him the video said, hey, the only thing that Strata was able to do was to find him. And I think from what I can gather from other people I've been speaking to, Strata Councils can only do that. There's nothing more that they can do, which is understandable. They can't do anything more, you know, find him. Okay, but that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me to feel safe in this building, to, to live here, knowing that somebody on the eighth floor should on a space that everybody uses, and he could be spitting on every other public space within our building, along with all the other public spaces within our community. So it wasn't enough for me to just know that he was fined. I called the police non-emergency line and they weren't able to do anything for me either. The police officers said they would not be able to arrest him because it's nothing criminal. It's not a criminal act. Although he may feel like it is a criminal act, and and I do because especially during this pandemic time, he may be a symptomatic carrier. We don't even know. So the most important kind of piece of information I want to take from this is that I feel like my safety and the safety of my family, the safety of everybody living in this building and within the community is compromised because this guy is out there intentionally spreading his germs on surfaces that people are touching on a daily basis. And I feel like I am endangered and it's not a nice feeling to know that I'm not safe within my own Apartment building.
1: So, to talk more with us about this, now we're joined by Nikki Reitmeier. Good morning, Nikki.
0: Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, sometimes we see these videos, they go viral online, and it's someone doing something just atrocious. And I, I, I shy away from doing these types of stories typically because more often than not, it's someone with mental health problems. But we know with this video, that's not the case. No. This guy spits on the elevator buttons in his residential building. You can see a gob of spit Ew. hanging off the buttons via security camera footage. That's how disgusting this was. So you can understand that Maria was really upset when she saw this video, as for the other residents in the building. So she contacts police. And what did the police say? Well, they said, and I quote, because I, I contacted police as well to follow up. They said, the caller, Maria... Was advised that unfortunately at this time it is not a police matter, as there is no criminal element to the investigation. The caller was advised to contact Strata and was given further advice as to where to go from here.
1: Okay, I don't, I don't really understand that because we just we talked to VPD last week, Nikki, and they told us that you know a suspect who coughs on police get charged with uh, assault right, of some kind. So is this not a similar situation where this person is really trying to potentially hurt other people?
0: Yeah, see, that's what confused me as well. Because you're right, when we talked to police last week, they said, if you cough on the police, if you spit on the police, in these times, you get charged with assault or aggravated assault. Yet in this case, they said, Well, look, there's no crime. But we know the guy was intentionally trying to spread his germs by disrespecting the people in his building and spitting on the elevator door. But the police said, Hey, sorry, there's no crime here that's been committed. That doesn't really jive
1: for me. No, it doesn't for me either. Uh, So I guess the other thing is here, you let social media go after him, right? You let the public do this work. And that certainly has been happening. He has been identified. Is that right?
0: Well, yes and no. So uh, he anonymously released a statement. So he is speaking, but who he is? Well, we don't have a name. Uh, He remains anonymous. He did provide a little bit more insight, though, into why he did what he did with that statement. So he owns a unit in the building. So that's confirmed. He does live there. He said he was having some kind of conflict with the Strata Council. And then he said that he spit on the elevator buttons in a, quote unquote, fit of anger. And then he added in his statement, I am horrified at my own actions, which are reprehensible and inexcusable.
1: Right. He said he said he was going to get counseling for his anger issues or whatever the case was. Exactly. So he said that he's
0: going to go get counselling, because obviously there are some some issues there that he needs to be working through. He said he's also going to make a meaningful donation, whatever that means, that's also in quotes, a meaningful donation to the Strata Council that will more than cover the cost of the extra sanitation required. Plus, I believe that he's receiving a fine from Strata as well for his actions. I would And hope his so. lawyer, who you've probably been hearing from in the news, his name is uh, Richard Fowler, he said, "Look, my client is just a regular guy who made a big mistake.
7: Normal young man who did something profoundly stupid that he instantly regretted, and um, of course is paying a big price right now."
1: Yeah. Okay. I agree with the, he'll be paying a big price, but I don't know if I would say this was like a momentary lapse in judgment because we were talking about it here amongst ourselves, Nikki. And I thought, you know, this person had to have thought about it. Right. And you can see from the footage, he looks both ways. He checks to make sure there's nobody around. Like there was a little bit of thought put into this.
2: Well, he had
0: eight floors to think about it as he was riding that elevator up from the parkade until he got to his floor. And then, like you said, he kind of looks and to see if anyone's standing there and then boof and spits on the, on the buttons of the elevator. So, I mean, part of me, the sympathetic part of me, the bleeding heart part of me feels bad for this guy, knowing that he's ashamed to probably leave his unit now and even show his face in, in his hallways because of the stupid thing that he did. But on the other hand a big part of me goes, you know, is a strata counsel thinking? fine enough for what this guy did, which is really disrespectful and inexcusable.
1: It is. He says, a part of a part of a statement also included, I am employed, have never had any issues with law enforcement and am otherwise a good law abiding citizen. I can't explain my own actions in this situation. He said a public apology is not enough in this case. It is difficult to express how horrified I feel about my conduct, especially given the pandemic that worries everyone. So it sounds like there is some realization there.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the best you can hope for in yeah, this type of situation. At least he's self-aware enough to go, look, I don't know what I did here about what I was yeah. thinking. I screwed up, but I want to move on and I want to make right what I did. So, you know, best case scenario, the guy is self-aware enough to realize that he's screwed up and he's not going to do it again.
1: One would hope. Okay, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, could there be a glimmer of hope for the Canadian oil and gas industry? So many people sure hope so. There was a major agreement reached over the weekend between global oil producers. So let's talk about what it all means. Joining us now is Derek DeCloot, the Managing Editor of Bloomberg Canada. Derek, thanks for being here. Thank you. So is this a good thing and will this mean that there's some hope for the industry here?
8: Well, it's a start, uh, you know, cutting global oil production by about 10 million barrels a day. That's about 10 uh, percent of of uh, of normal production. Um, it does get us some way there toward a, a more balanced oil market. Uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, at least for the time being, while so many countries are under economic lockdown, uh, the demand has just been been killed. Um you have all the all of the normal demand for uh uh commuters and you know the gasoline and diesel and so on. you have uh demand from the air travel industry that's all you know not quite vanished but but is is significantly lower and will be for some time so it, it's hard to say it's hard to look at this one deal and say. Uh, that it's just up from here for the oil industry. There is a long way to go on all of this,
1: right? So, does that cut in production—the ten million barrels a day—does that match mm-hmm. the lack of demand that we're seeing? I thought demand was down greater than that.
8: It is, yes. So, like I said, it brings it closer to balance, but uh, uh, you know, and the longer these lock. The problem is we don't exactly know how long the lockdowns are are going to go in the big oil-consuming countries like the United States. Uh, So the longer they go, the more likely you are to see an imbalance creep back into the market. In other words, demand to stay well below, you know, what it would normally be. And when that happens, of course, um, you know, oil producers have to uh, either turn down the pumps again, cut production again, or find places to to store oil uh, for another day when they can they can sell it at a higher price. There's only so much. Capacity in in North America, you know, in Canada and in, and in the United States and elsewhere, um, for storing oil, these tanks are, are 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 you know not that many weeks away from getting full. So um, uh, yeah, the longer the lockdown goes, the more likely it is you will, and when the worse the outlook for the uh, for the virus, uh, the uh, the more likely it is you'll see prices creep back down, and then you you might find uh, uh OPEC having to come back to the table again for for further cuts.
1: Yeah, and what happened to that because the reason why we had seen this whole battle was uh you know Saudi Arabia and Russia not getting along. Have they kissed and made up? What's happening?
8: Well, I don't think they're ever going to be bosom buddies. Uh but they've they, they've recognized that uh, uh practically giving away oil, oil for nothing isn't good for for any country. Um and uh and so for the time being they've let's call it a marriage of convenience uh the big sticking point in this conversation in in that negotiation last week was uh was actually mexico uh Mexico's relatively new president uh has a uh, made a point of saying he's going to reverse years of oil decline uh by the state oil producer uh Pemex. And he's going to, you know, open up the pumps. And so Mexico was very reluctant to to play along here and say that they would cut. In the end, they agreed to a small cut. And uh, and the other OPEC uh, uh, producers kind of of allowed Mexico to get away with it. And that is how we got to a deal. But the history of OPEC, of course, is that it's a fractious group. Um, They agree to things, but then you know, some countries try to cheat on them, produce a little bit more right. uh, at the margin, and uh, and so agreements don't necessarily uh, always stick for long with OPEC. So we'll see.
1: What about prices? Then have they have they like improved as a result of this? Did they like what they saw?
8: Yeah, the market's relatively flat for oil this morning, uh, but a lot of the uh, price jumps anticipating this big uh, meeting. Uh, they had already happened in the last ten days or so. So you saw uh, world oil prices uh, uh, leap to more than uh, thirty dollars a barrel. Canadian oil prices uh, the week before last had had got a, a sort of temporary uh, big boost. They were extremely low, and of course they're still extremely low. Uh, so a lot of that, a lot of that uh, action in the market, if you will, happened anticipating this. The, the market is sort of. This morning saying, man, that was okay, but um, but it's not it it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, we're not driving uh, nearly as much. We're not flying nearly as much. Uh, There was there was a stat uh, recently that one day there were fewer than one hundred thousand people flying in the United States on that day. That's an extraordinarily low number. And as long as demand remains low, oil prices are going to stay low.
1: That certainly seems that way. I mean, I saw prices on the way in this morning, 92.9, which we haven't seen probably in 20 years, but that's still not going to be enough for people to go get gas if they don't have a job, don't have anywhere to go.
8: That's right. And and even many people who are still working, they don't have to commute to to their jobs. I I filled up my tank three weeks ago, and it's still almost full because I've only really been to the grocery store. So um, there's no... um, there's no changing that until until the virus recedes, and we can all start going places again,
1: so you don't think this production cut is going to really help improve things until the demand starts to bounce back
8: That's right I mean it, like i said it 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 has stopped oil prices from falling any further um, it has you know it it has stopped us from the point where oil was in some parts of the world practically free um at the yeah, at the wholesale level but Um, really in order to see prices move back up in a meaningful way, in a way that's going to help, for example, the oil producing regions of of Canada, you know, in in Alberta, primarily in Saskatchewan, uh, you have to have a return to, to something that looks more like normal life.
1: We'll see if that happens. Derek, thank you. Thank you. That's Derek DeClue, the managing editor of Bloomberg Canada, talking to us about the oil price kind of truce that they have reached. Uh, OPEC and other countries have agreed to cut their output uh, by almost 10%. It's something like 9.7 million barrels of oil per day. And it did allow prices to go up a little bit. But as Derek points out, Until we actually get demand back, which is far from happening right now, uh, oil prices are seemingly destined to stay at about the same price that they are.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It is a situation cities across the country are facing. So many homeowners who can't afford to pay their property taxes. This has become such a stark reality that in Vancouver, at least, the mayor has said if they don't get financial help from the upper levels of government, the provincial government, the federal government, that the city is seriously looking at some insolvency. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver. Thank you for joining us this morning.
9: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: I understand you did some polling on this. So how serious is the situation for people who can't pay their property taxes?
9: Well, uh, it's a serious economic situation for everybody in the city. And we found that almost half of residents had either had a uh, uh, drop in their um, incomes or have lost their jobs. So that's translated to people uh, not being able to pay their mortgages and also not being able to pay their rents. So that's uh, you know my heart goes out to everybody. This is really a tough situation. Not just the uh, physical isolation and staying inside, but but also the economic impact. Now that also shifts over to the city as well. We found that uh, up to a quarter of, of residents may not be you know would pay less than their than even half of their uh, property taxes or even none. And so that would could equate to a three hundred and twenty million dollar loss for us this year if that happens. Uh, and coupled with the losses we're already facing uh, would be about you know could be up to a half a billion dollars and so cities can't run deficits right by law we can't Mm -hmm. do that federal and provincial governments can we can't and so that means we have to immediately begin uh, shutting down services so we've uh, already laid off 1500 workers the city of Surrey's laid off 2000 like this is starting to spread right across the country but we haven't cut into essential services yet Uh, with 30 percent of our budget being spent on fire and police here in the city. Um, you know, if we had that kind of revenue loss, we'd have to, for example, move into laying off uh, firefighters, uh, having fewer police on the streets, uh, fewer permitting uh, bylaw officers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, this isn't some kind of fantasy discussion. This is something that is already beginning to happen right across the country.
1: Is this something that Vancouver is planning for at this point? Like, are you putting together those worst case scenarios?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Last week, uh, we had a document put together by our, uh, chief financial officer and we're debating it at council tomorrow. What we're, what we're trying to offer residents or discussing is whether we extend a grace period for people to pay their property taxes. That's not a deferral, but it would give them some extra time to, to pay their property taxes. Instead of collecting them in July, uh, we're proposing to protect, uh, collect them in September. However, uh, that still doesn't deal with a uh, default. So, um, you know, that may help property owners, but that's about the best we can do. What we really need is for the province of British Columbia to use their, their property uh, tax deferral mechanism, which usually applies to seniors, but to extend that to all residential business and nonprofit profit uh, taxpaying uh, property owners. So they can basically get a loan from the provincial government to pay their property tax.
1: Right. So the idea is, that as you said, Vancouver can't run a deficit as other cities cannot. Uh, would that help if for one year cities were allowed to do that?
9: Well, the reason why it works at the federal provincial level is because they have ability to raise income tax or sales tax. But we don't have that ability. All we have is uh, property tax. And so, you know, every year we we hear that uh, we, you know, property tax usually goes up between four and seven percent. But if we had to increase it by twenty or twenty-five percent, I don't think that uh, that works at the local level. So unless we get additional tools from the from the upper levels of government, uh, then uh, we're really in a bind. And that's all of us. You're hearing it from Toronto. You're hearing it from Edmonton. Uh, some municipalities across Canada are already liquidating. Um, uh, property to pay their bills. Um, and, of course, that would be something that we could look at here, too. Instead of building that park that everybody wanted, we sell it to a developer and they build private property on it or something. So that's those are the kind of situations we're facing in the very uh, near run if w- these property tax defaults uh, What about or, these
1: other mechanisms you talked about? Like, what do you think would help?
9: Well, uh, you know, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the big city mayors um, uh, you know, that, that I uh, caucus with across the country, we're, we're all saying basically we need an immediate upfront infl- uh, influx of cash. Um, you know, I did ask the provincial government for that last week. Apparently that's not on the table. So we're going to have to now turn to them and say, well, how are you going to help us? Because at this point, we've heard nothing.
1: But you said even with that influx of cash, you asked for $200 million. You're talking about mm-hmm. a half a billion dollar deficit. That's still a pretty huge hole. What else is on the table in Vancouver? What programs are, are being cut already?
9: Well, of course, all the uh, community centers, uh, you know, park board facilities are all closed. Uh, we've, you know, we tried to get some staff to work from home. But if they can't do their job at home, then they've been laid off. Uh, but, again, 30% of our budget is police and fire, and most of those services, uh, you know, uh, most of those operating funds go into personnel. It goes into the officer on the beat. It goes on into the firefighter or paramedics that, uh, you know, are so important during these, this uh, crisis. But, um, you know, we,
1: uh,
9: money speaks for itself, right? I mean, if, if we can't pay their salaries, then we have to lay them off.
1: So what about the Rainy Day Fund, though? There's been a lot of criticism directed Mm -hmm. at the city saying, you know, you guys didn't adequately plan for this. There wasn't enough of a a fund put aside just in case something bad really did happen.
9: No, we do have reserves, um, for sure. And we could burn through those first. uh, Then we could sell property. Uh, so we have, but the Euro, you know, the reserves come from property tax increases. So every year we hear, oh, you're raising property taxes so high, and we try to balance that. Uh, but uh, you know, we try to balance it so to, to fit with the public mood and our needs. But uh, the only way you build up reserves is by increasing property taxes, and uh, so or that's the by- dilemma we're in. And so we've we've been prudent. I mean, but this is an extraordinary set of circumstances for us to handle, and it never, never really happened in the city's history. Um, and uh, so it calls for extraordinary measures from city senior levels of government as well.
1: Okay, so changing projects as well, too, right? Like, you're moving forward, a lot of projects that the City of Vancouver was working on, will they not happen?
9: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you show up to build that deck on your back, uh, you know, in the back of your house... Uh, all those permitting, all those permitting people, people in the planning department—they're all paid by property taxes.
1: But what about right? capital and, projects that the city was working on?
9: Well, capital projects, uh, you know, they're, they're a separate budget. However, we still need people to work on those projects. So all the engineers, all the people that—you uh, know—you think you take the Granville Bridge for example, refurbishing that, but if we have to lay off the engineers that are overseeing it. Then that project grinds to a halt too. Um, this isn't just for this year. If this goes on, uh, it, it moves into next year. what, it, what, it, Why I'm flagging it so early is it seriously threatens our economic recovery. You know, if you can't get a business license from the city to open your new business, you can't operate and you can't generate the revenues that you need, to, you know, that our whole economy needs. So we are a crucial link in the supply chain when it comes to our economy. And I don't think that part uh, has been yet addressed by the federal or provincial governments. Has
1: you know, there been... You can- Yep. Any, any thought to the city of Vancouver issuing some fines to people when it comes to social distancing? We talked about this protest that happened yesterday, people not following the rules. Any thoughts? that? Yeah, I mean, that?
9: the park board, is, I think they've got it right here. Like, the only way we're going to get through this is by coming together as a group. And I think other cities have found that that fines just, you know, you can send symbolic messages, but it doesn't really help. If, you're, if your population's ignoring uh, health orders for their own health, um, you you know that it's very hard to enforce uh across a whole city however uh, i think the park board's got it right they have their champions out uh on the seawall for example if they see people that aren't uh, physically distancing they go over and remind them and most people have just forgotten they're excited to see their friend or maybe a family member and they momentarily forget and i think we've all kind of you know had that inclination uh to give you know to give your in-laws a hug or something but uh you've just got to stop it and most of it is well-intentioned 99 percent of the folks here are doing what they should be doing and i'm so proud of uh everybody for 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 how they're handling this uh, really this uh, incredible situation
1: and up next and what is the next um option you have meetings with the provincial government what's going to happen
9: well, we have a council meeting tomorrow that we will uh, decide whether or not to give uh, property taxpayers a, a grace period. So instead of paying in July, we can defer that until their payments until uh, until September. And that would provide some relief. Uh, you know, I think we're all hoping for an early recovery from this emergency. But that, uh, you know, that, that, that that's really what we need. Uh, otherwise, you know, The city is going to be a very different place in the coming months.
1: All right, Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: What's been tough for a lot of people during this isolation and and self-quarantine is the fact that so many recreation areas have also closed down. Provincial parks are now off limits. There's just fewer places to go and enjoy the outdoors, even if you were saying to yourself, I'm going to leave lots of distance between myself and the next person out there. Well, the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC is also worried about that lack of options, particularly for people who don't have a whole lot of outdoor space to begin with. Joining us now is Louise Patterson. Of uh, the executive director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC, Louise. Thanks for being here.
10: Thank you very much for having me on the show.
1: Well, have you been hearing about this concern from people?
10: Yeah, we've definitely. I mean, I, I'm I'm one. I live in an apartment building. Um, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of concern that you know one one park system after another is is is, is closing down, and it just it just leaves very little space for for each of us to, to go to, especially as we've been, uh, you know, we've been told to, to stay home or stay in our local area. Um, so, yeah, no, it is it is it is greatly concerning.
1: So what would be the solution here, Louise? Because I know the problem is that people weren't listening.
10: Yeah, no, uh, so the Outdoor Recreation Council is a, we are a charity, we are an umbrella organization of, um, organizations such as, uh, you know, the hikers, the paddlers, the quad riders, and so on, and so on. And together, I mean, we've definitely been, I, and I've seen our uh, our members doing a great job at at educating, uh, you know, their members and their local communities. But, yeah, like a lot more has to be done to, to educate British Columbians so that we all, you know, um, you know, practice safe um, social distancing, distancing, and that we go, don't gather in, in groups and that sort of thing. So, what what can be done? Yes, I mean, so we are concerned that you know, as you're kind of closing down more parks, you know, it's going to be even more difficult to uh, to to be safe in um, in in the remaining parks. So we are, we are. Ho- I mean, hopefully there there'll be some 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 creative solutions to this, so that um, I mean, maybe more more space can be opened up. I know that Sandy Park has done. You know, a really interesting uh, taking this this step to to closing down for for, for cars and and for bicycles, I right. guess, on on, on the seawall. I mean that there are, there are cities all around the world that are doing uh, such things right now. They're closing down riverside parkways, uh, roads to uh, to traffic, so that you know people who who live in urban in urban areas can uh, can recreate can, can get outside, get some fresh air. Uh, in a in a in a safe way because uh, you know as, as you know too you know like um walking along the sidewalk these days is, is you know, it's, it's not uh, especially conducive to practicing social or physical no. distancing. It's kind of hard to kind of get a, around other people. And also, I mean, it is really encouraging that people want to get outside and it's such a good counterbalance to, uh, you know, all the time that we are spending inside our own homes. It's so good for our, all of us on, on a lot of different levels, Right? you know, families with children, individuals, you know, like, uh, you know, when we get outside, we might not be able to get very close to other people, but we, we can at least like you know wave high, and you know there's there's a yeah. lot of benefit even just seeing other people
1: louise do you and, think and, and, that's the key know? here then like i know you put out some information on this as well like if more people respected the physical distancing as a very strict rule do you think that would be helpful perhaps in getting a few parks reopened
10: yeah definitely hoping that uh, that, that would be the case and i think one of the one of the things that, that I think is working really well is to have people at Parkheads and in, um, or oh, Trailheads, sorry, and in, in parks just, you know, educating park users about, uh, you know, just the importance. And, you know, I think it's, I don't think people really want to disobey these rules. I think they just sort of like forget and they get so, um, you know, excited about being outside. So I think having, you know, it could be volunteers, it could be, uh, you know, park staff, um, having them outside and, and just sort of like reminding people to to space out. And I think it's also for all of us to just kind of look for, you know, maybe there are other times of the day where we could kind of go out. Let's maybe not all go out at one o'clock, but, you know, go out like, uh, (laughs) you know, a little early, early in the day. The days are really long. Go head outside, you know, during during the evening where there's not a lot of uh, people on the trails. So I think that's definitely a lot that we can all do. But I think also, you know, within our parks, just having people there to sort of like remind everybody to um to be safe uh you know we'll we'll go a long way to to keeping our parks open
1: more supervision than you're saying
10: Uh, yeah yeah just education supervision yeah for sure
1: all right louise thank you very much
10: Thank
1: you very much. Louise Patterson, uh, the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. Uh, They think that there needs to be a little bit more outdoor kind of park access for people with more supervision. Uh, We heard that the Park Board in Vancouver, they have people out and about just reminding people like a little more space between you over there. Please keep your social distancing. Uh, Maybe that would do the trick because in the beginning we just had way too many people who weren't following those social distancing rules. But are we ready to open a few parks, Back up, do you think people
2: would listen? This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I think right now we're kind of really stuck in the present, aren't we? Uh, we kind of long for the past, all those good old days when we could socialize and see each other. And you think about the future and you're just not sure at this point when you're going to be able to do any of that again. But there are people out there who want to make sure that we also preserve this moment in history. And they want to do that with your journal. Now, it may not be as common as it used to be, but there are still plenty of people out there who keep a daily journal. And a museum in Trail actually would like to encourage you to do that because they would like to make an exhibit out of the journals that people keep during this pandemic. Uh, We're joined now by the Museum and Archives Manager with the City of Trail, Sarah Benson-Lord. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So you're really looking ahead to that moment in time when we can look back on this.
11: Absolutely. Um, I think with the um, immediate amount of media we're getting on a daily basis, um, and how much we're consuming so very quickly, our emotions and our feelings are changing so rapidly, and maybe how we're conducting ourselves is changing that rapidly. Um, To be able to sort of capture... You know, even in a weekly format, not necessarily daily, but a weekly format, how our lives are changing is just a fascinating um, exercise.
1: I guess this would be a lot like people who wrote letters to each other, right, during uh, different historical events, whether it was World War One or World War II or whatever, but we don't have that record of letters anymore.
11: Oh, well, we certainly do.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> we have, um, in the present day, people don't write letters to each other anymore. That's that's very true, unless
11: you're capturing you know, social media um, threads or, or emails, but that's very true. There's something very um, almost romantic about a handwritten letter, and um, this reminded me of some letters we received um, last year, over 200 from a World War I soldier back to his family, and we created an exhibit. And just before the end of the war in, in November of 1918, the Spanish flu hit trail, pretty hard. Um, and one of the comments back from, from the soldier's father was, we'd love to be celebrating the end of the war, but there's so much death here right now. Um, so really pivotal world, uh, global moments like that are impacted by, by other horrible things. And for that to be captured in writing, you know, it kind of gives you pause. Like, what, what was going on here? How were people feeling?
1: Yeah. And if we don't record it now with people's thoughts and, you know, memories and recollections, how are we going to remember it in the future?
11: Well, and I don't even remember how I was feeling last week because the news is changing so rapidly. So I wonder even from the perspective of somebody in the media like yourself who's, who's, who's reporting this, um, how, how it's impacting uh, people in the field.
1: Oh, wow, you're asking me. Okay, I can answer sure. that question. <laughs> uh, you know what, you're right about that, though. We're used to the news being very fast paced, but nothing we've ne- we haven't seen anything like what we have seen with this particular mm-hmm. story. And it's hard because there's so many different versions of the story. But you also don't want to hit people over the head with the negative stuff all the time, right?
11: That's really true. And I think um, we've all got varying degrees of severity. Um, so based on our own personal circumstances, so certain people who are still at work, um, but then facing perhaps the threat of a disease or people that have been laid off and facing the threat of yeah. being unable to pay their mortgage. So no one is immune to this situation. That's what's so remarkable about it.
1: So Sarah, how can people help out? Though they, I'm, I'm thinking this is a great idea, but what do you need from people?
11: Uh, like I say it doesn't necessarily have to be daily but even sitting down at night with your kids or over the phone with 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 your parents who may be in a care home or far away just start capturing how you're feeling even if it's weekly write it in a word document we don't care if it's a, if it's in digital format um, just start keeping a record of how you feel your life is changing or how certain conveniences are being, being taken away um, we know when people journal you're journaling in the in the uh, thought that no one's going to read this we are going to read this um, privacy can be respected. Those are all things we can, we can talk about, and if a donation would be imminent. Um, but that's the kind of stuff we want to be able to capture. This is a social record, and yeah. um, we're, we're making history right now.
1: So where can people send this, or where can they find more information?
11: Well, they could give me a shout. They can contact us um, here in Trail at the museum, or contact your own museum. Um, most of our collections policies uh, have us uh, retaining um, papers or artifacts that are pertinent to our own communities. Um, but I know there are going to be other museums doing this. This wasn't my idea. That is a disclaimer I'll put out there. This wasn't my <laughs> idea. It's an idea that's been floating around the BC Museums Association listserv for a while, but we thought we'd get a heads up on it. We don't know what this collection is going to look like. We have no idea until uh, things start coming in, and we don't want things right now. Right. We, want
1: you to, we want it com- compiled. I love this idea. All right, Sarah, I hope you get lots of submissions. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much.